know, we were called from the school about what they had found out and that they were worried about my daughter and asked us to, you know, seek help for her, which of course we would have done anyway. Later on, my daughter did disclose that they had her really sort of stripped down and took pictures and everything to make sure that she was not, I guess, looking at the severity of the injuries. Although non-suicidal self-injury, or NSSI for short, is most frequently done alone and behind closed doors, teachers and school staff are often among the first to learn about the behavior in students. This is how my friend Dee from episode 6 learned about her daughter's self-injury. But is it the school's job to assess the severity of the self-injury wound, or to have students show them the wounds? If not, how should they respond? Because schools often worry about liability, there can be a low tolerance for behaviors about which they know little, such as self-injury. But when is concern for liability not an appropriate excuse for improper responses to students who self-injure? To answer these questions, and to talk about how self-injury is managed differently in different parts of the world, I am joined today from McGill University in Montreal, Canada, by Dr. Nancy Heath. Welcome to the Psychology of Self-Injury podcast, a resource for parents, professionals, and people with lived experience. I'm your host, Dr. Nicholas Westers, clinical psychologist at Children's Health, associate professor at UT Southwestern Medical Center in Dallas, Texas, and chair of the Media and Communications Committee of the International Society for the Study of Self-Injury, or ISSS, or simply ISSS. When I finished the first draft of my literature review for my dissertation on self-injury back in graduate school, a new book came out that included contributions from leading researchers in the field at the time. It was one of the first research-based books on the topic and included new information I just had to add to my literature review. The title of the book? Self-Injury in Youth, The Essential Guide to Assessment and Intervention, co-authored by Drs. Mary Nixon and Nancy Heath. I have since had the privilege of interacting with and getting to know Dr. Heath through ISSS. In fact, Dr. Heath is a founding member and past president of ISSS. She is a James McGill professor in the Department of Educational and Counseling Psychology and the Associate Dean of Research for the Faculty of Education at McGill University in Canada. She is the co-founder of the International Consortium for Self-Injury in Educational Settings, as well as the co-founder and co-director of Self-Injury Outreach and Support, an online recovery-focused support resource that has been accessed in more than 150 countries, sharing information about NSSI to diverse stakeholders at siOutreach.org. She's an international leading researcher in the area of self-injury in mental health and educational settings, and we have the opportunity to learn from her on today's episode. Welcome, Dr. Heath. Thank you for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate this opportunity to get sort of the word out. Yeah, I'm really excited to hear what you have to share today about self-injury in schools. And what I like to ask everyone at the beginning of every episode is specifically how they became involved or interested in non-suicidal self-injury to begin with. So how did you become interested in researching self-injury and researching self-injury in schools specifically? Well, that's actually an interesting story because it's over 20 years ago in 1997 that one of my doctoral students in school psychology, who was actually studying depression in schools, and in her interviews, self-injury kept coming up, non-suicidal self-injury. And she came to me and she said, I can't find anything in the literature about this other than, you know, in hospital settings. And these are young people that are doing exceptionally well in many areas of their life. And yet they're 
cutting themselves, bruising themselves, and they say it makes them feel better. And this was in 1997. There was nothing out there. So we actually decided, well, let's see the scope of this. And we reached out expecting maybe we'd find, you know, 2% of students saying they did this, you know, this odd behavior we thought then. And then when we did anonymous surveys back then in 1998, we found that 13 to 14% of high school kids in urban and suburban settings were indicating engaging in this behavior. And if we did it actually anonymously, it went as high as 20%. And then when we had them come in, because we thought maybe they misunderstood the question, no one had seen this in schools. We came in and interviewed them, and it was clearly there, and that's when it came down to 13 14%. And that was a decision at that point in my life, in my career. Previously, I'd always done depression, mental health in schools. To really look at this and say, this is a group of students that we are completely not supporting. We're completely misunderstanding And no one knows how to address this. And I really thought, and it was a conscious sort of discussion I had with people around me about, this is something where we can make a tremendous difference to these young people with very little input on our part. So my career shifted in 1998 to start studying and reaching out and supporting, changing how students who engage in self-injury are responded to in the schools. Yeah, 1997, 1998, there was nothing much even in the early 2000s other than a few studies, and we didn't even call it non-suicidal self-injury at that point. (laughs) No, we certainly didn't, exactly. It was the very, our study was the first study in the world of showing, you know, non-suicidal self-injury in the schools at that time. Wow. Just thinking about schools in general, I mean, we could talk about just self-injury in general, but for our episode, I'm curious about your thoughts and expertise related to schools. How is responding to self-injury in the school setting different, say, from responding to self-injury in other settings? That's a really good question, and it's something that is so important for mental health professionals working in schools to understand and those who are outside of the school to understand. Because when we're working in the school, we have students with lived experience of self-injury at every level. It could be someone who's using the behavior to cope in a transitory way, and it's not a huge issue for them in a short period of time, and they do not want treatment, they do not want to have follow-up, but someone, quote-unquote, tells on them, and then they're sort of forced to have the discussion. And we have to deal with that in the school. We also go to the other end of the continuum, where a student who perhaps has had a suicide attempt, been hospitalized, had really severe difficulties, is being followed by the hospital, But we have to work with the hospital, the students back in the school, and we find out one way or the other, rarely from the student themselves, that they're engaging in self-injury. And now it's a much more complicated situation. And we can't just, you know, ship out the student to the hospital until they're quote unquote fixed. It doesn't work that way. So we have to support students from a simple coping that is transitory to sort of middle ground of repetitive self-injury that is really effective in helping them cope with the stressors day to day. 
to individuals where it really is very complicated and we have to work with outside resources. And schools also have an extreme range of resources to do this. It could be anything from almost no resources, no training, no knowledge, with tremendous stigma associated with it, to a very advanced understanding and good setting and support. So there's such variety in this setting in how students can and are responded to. It's quite unique that way. Yeah, I've spoken to a number of school counselors or crisis counselors, and they're in, responsible for checking on hundreds of students, and there's just one of them, and that's here in the U.S., and I don't know other parts of the world or in Canada, but yeah, the, the resources can be very scarce in some school districts. Exactly. But what I always say, I've worked with school systems around the world, and there's sometimes a fear. I don't have the resources. We don't have training. We don't have the capacity to provide therapeutic intervention. And so we can't deal with it. And my point is, you're already dealing with it. You know, these students are in your school, they're struggling, they really need your support. By looking the other way, you're doing not just no good, you're doing harm. So what you have to do is say, it's already here. Even if I do a little bit, a simple understanding of the behavior and a warm, compassionate support of these students by itself does tremendous benefits over turning you know, the other way and pretending it's not happening because you want to not believe this is happening in your school. Because I don't care if you're in China, in Iran, in Jordan, in India, in Texas, in Canada, it's happening in your school. And we have listeners from those countries. I know that there's an interest in this topic and people all over the world engage in non-suicidal self-injury. So it's happening, like you said, in the schools around the world. Are there protocols available to school staff, administrators, and teachers to really help them respond well to students who do disclose self-injury or whose friends go and tell them that their friend is self-injuring? Yes, we definitely endorse the idea of using something that's called a school protocol or a school policy that gives real guidelines to the people in the school. And it has to be talked about in advance. It's not ideally crisis intervention when a student has come forward, where people sit, all the concerned people, educators, the mental health professionals, the administrators, and ideally students involved in that process to talk about how the school is going to respond and what will be the procedure, who will they go to with this. There's got to be at least one designated person that people in the school, whether it's a student, whether it's an educator, knows to go to. Usually it's a mental health professional in the school, but if you don't have that, it can be someone else who is comfortable and has some training in this area. And there's really good guidelines available. And I know that, you know, you provide some resources in your notes, and maybe I can share some of those with you so people can check them out. We also know that it's better to have a three-tiered model in terms of preventing self-injury, in building capacity to cope with distress, to cope with stress as well as distress, and to just have that increased support through the whole school. And that's kind of tier one. And then tier two is students that we know are a little bit more at risk, but maybe 
we don't know if they're actually engaging in self-injury, providing more targeted practice in the skills that are important for coping effectively in a healthy way. And then the third tier is really where the school protocol comes in, which is how do we respond once it becomes apparent that a student is struggling with self-injury? And this is, we have written many papers or chapters or position papers about how to do this. And again, that might be something I'd want to share with you for your resources at the end. Yes, I will be sure to add those and links to those in the episode notes for people that are interested in reading like the detailed protocols. Can you share with us a little bit maybe about that, I guess, the, the third tier where there is that response to students who self-injure and what you might recommend to schools and how they respond? Yes. Well, the first response to students in schools for students who engage in self-injury is so critical in terms of their willingness to seek help and their willingness to consider any kind of support. Because if our first response is one of horror or disgust or just discomfort, just sort of, what? why would you do such a thing? That seems like to many educators... That seems like such a first response that makes sense. Why would you do such a thing? That is such a harmful response. So if that very first response can be altered, so if we can really provide the information to educators and to everyone in the school, lunchroom monitors, administrators, I don't care, parent volunteers who are working in the school, that if this comes to your attention, that you understand that this is a coping strategy. This is a way of trying to deal with very difficult emotions or circumstances in the best way you know how. And you respond with a calm, understanding, compassionate way of saying, you know, it sounds like you're struggling with things and I'm worried about you. Maybe we could get you some support. You don't focus on the self-injury. The self-injury is not that relevant. The self-injury is an indication of the student's struggle. So instead, if I as an educator, if a student came to me and said, I'm feeling terrible and I'm crying all the time, would I say, why are you doing that? Of course not. I would say, what's going on? I'm worried about you. Maybe we can get you the support. If I find out someone's cutting themselves, I should have the same response. What's going on? You know, I'm worried about you. Maybe we can get you some support. So that is the key thing that we have to permeate our schools with, how to respond, how to understand this behavior, reframing it as a coping mechanism that's very effective. It works. It's not the healthiest one if we evaluate it as long-term consequences. And getting supports in place for the student, that's what's most important. So knowing who I go to, who do I take the student to, who do I consult as an educator when I'm worried about a student? Those are the key pieces. Thank you for sharing. Thank you. Sometimes students will actually self-injure on school grounds. And this is different than those who might do so at night when they're alone in their bedroom. How should schools respond based on self-injury that occurs at home or outside of school versus self-injury that occurs on campus, like in the school bathroom? Yes, that's often a real concern for schools. From my perspective, I taught in schools, I've worked in schools and worked with schools for, you know, 25 years. So I understand their concern around this. 
But the only reason it's different is because one, there is a health concern if there is blood involved. In the same way that we would be concerned if a student cut themselves inadvertently. In terms of blood, there are rules in schools about how we handle it for health reasons. So it should be responded to in the same way for the health and safety reasons. But the other concern that is different in a school setting when a student is engaging in self-injury in that context is the social influence of that behavior. And schools need to put that in perspective. It's not a huge issue. It's not the worry that they seem to feel. We did a study recently of school administrators' beliefs and thinkings about self-injury in their schools. And the fascinating thing, Dr. Westers, was that the school leaders were expressing tremendous concern about if a student self-injured on campus, how other students would feel, how educators would feel, how their staff would feel, how this might impact the whole school community in a very worrying way. I was listening and I thought, what about the student? (laughs) You know, like your concern should be for the student who is struggling. But there is this school concern about if someone engages in self-injury on campus and others encounter or see this, that A, they'll be more likely to engage in the behavior themselves, and B, that they may be, and I use quotation marks, traumatized. (laughs) And the first, in terms of they're likely to use it, there's no evidence that this is the case. There's no evidence that if you know of or hear about someone engaging in self-injury, you're more likely to do it. Because that is true 20 years ago, when it was not commonly known by young people. If you ask any young person, they know about the existence of self-injury. It's in media, it's it's everywhere. So it's not a surprise to them. So it's not going to be what's going to contribute to the engagement in self-injury. It's not going to spread like wildfire. There's not, people use the term contagion, which is an incorrect term, but it's not going to be changing the behavior of other students who would not otherwise engage in the behavior. In terms of it being, quote unquote, traumatizing, it's not at all the case. They may be upset by this. But that is a natural response, and they should be upset. They should be concerned for their peers. So really, if one frames it within the community of the school as a coping behavior, and the peers know, if you see a peer engaging in this behavior, try to get them the support they need, and you can also reach out and get some support about how do you support this student. But other than that, there's no huge difference per se. It's a perception by the school that it's very different if it happens on campus. It's not really the case that it is that different. Thank you for that clarification. And you just referenced the word contagion as an incorrect word. I'm sure listeners picked up on that. Can you explain a little bit what you mean by that? Yes, because contagion is a medical term that refers to a sickness or an illness being spread. And to medicalize a coping behavior by saying it's going to be contagious, that it's going to spread like an illness, really contributes to the stigma associated with it 
And it's absolutely incorrect because it's not spreading like a germ, even if there is a socially influenced group. And socially influenced group would be if you have two or more instances or incidences of self-injury in a 24 to 48 hour period in one small group of friends. Then there is a social influence that's occurring that you do need to talk about or discuss with the individuals involved. But it's not an illness and it's not spreading. So to refer to it as contagion is really incorrect and harmful. I think it was in episode four with Dr. Penny Hasking, we talked about stigma and how we talk about self-injury and how that can perpetuate stigma. So calling it contagious as if it's some sort of germ that one can catch. Another question I have is related to an individual self-injuring and that being found out at school. And you referenced the response of many schools is to be more concerned about that behavior's effect on other students rather than the actual student that we're talking about and that self-injures. For many individuals with lived experience, one of their, I guess, challenges that they may face is being able to own whatever wounds or scars are on their body without having to be ashamed. And I know sometimes that might include wearing short sleeve shirts or shorts that reveal marks or scars. Schools may not like that. But then that's also, for some people, part of their story that's important for the recovery. How can we balance or how can schools balance respecting an individual's journey in recovery with self-injury and addressing the concern that the school might have that the behavior or scars could affect other people or influence other students? Well, this is where our approach in schools is tiered so that you have community-wide education that helps students understand healthy and less healthy or unhealthy coping behaviors. And when we educate all of the student body around what is healthy coping, what is unhealthy coping, and we put NSSI in the unhealthy coping category along with substance abuse or misuse, aggression, excessive sleeping, excessive online gaming. So we frame it as one of many behaviors. When we do that, part of that education is we say when a peer or a fellow student shows evidence of their struggle or their unhealthy copings present or past, our role is to support them. And we can then frame that as the scars are part, as you say, of the journey and part of the healing. And therefore, it's not something that we ask students to cover up. It is a really sharp learning curve for school communities. We definitely do have to acknowledge that if there are open cuts for safety reasons, it's a general rule in schools that those have to be covered. But we educate schools and particularly administrators around the idea that as long as you frame it as Sue or Rick has the right to have swimming class or wear what they want regardless, and that we need to be respectful of that. And we give guidelines. But what we do recommend is we meet with the student when they've made the decision and we advise them. We say, look, if you want to make this decision, We want to support you in this process. We know it's important for you and we want to support you. So how do you want to handle potential questions? Do you want us to do sort of a general information to students about this is a type of coping and this is part of what, you know, Rick dealt with many years before or 
he's doing this and he does not want questions or he's willing to have questions. Do you want to talk to people? Do you want to do, you know, a blog or do you want to do something that can be shared? So really walking them through and giving them that support, giving system messages to the student body about what that student wants them to do to support that student. It is very, very challenging, but the worst scenario is when the student shows up at school because they don't feel there's anyone they can talk to. There's no designated person. But it should be communicated to them early on, widely to anyone, if you want to make this decision, we advise you to speak to the designated person who walks them through the process and how to support them so that it's not one day they show up and then everyone's staring, everyone's talking, and then the school's trying to catch up. They call them into the principal's office. You know, well, why did you do this? This is upsetting people. It has to be handled in a strategic way. So that's what we advise. I will say that is the hardest challenge in working with schools. They find that piece particularly difficult. So it takes a while for them to get there. Which is exactly why I had asked, because I know that's a challenge that they face. And I like that advice for those with lived experience that might even be listening, finding that targeted individual or support staff in advance rather than just going and and seeing what happens, which I guess is another strategy, but may not be as effective or might be met with, like you said, criticism by school staff even. In episode six of this podcast, I interviewed a friend of mine whose daughter had engaged in self-injury. When the school found out about it, they had her strip down and take off her clothes to examine her wounds and look for other ones on her body, all without her parents' knowledge. How appropriate is this? This is so many layers of inappropriate. I don't even know where to start. I mean, it's interesting you add all without her parents' knowledge to the end. Like, with her parents' knowledge, it would be okay. No, (laughs) it's not okay on any level. And some parents would agree to it. But without her parents' knowledge, it's criminal. Even with parents' knowledge, it is unacceptable. And moreover, it's really ineffective and tremendously harmful. So I know that I was called into a private school for a consultation. It was an all-girls private school And it was a residential boarding school. And they had had a bunch of young women engaging in self-injury. And it had become a number of young women were doing this. And so they were using the art tools primarily. So they confiscated. They had to log out art tools and they had to put them back in. And and then they were using the little pinpoint things that they were using again in art. So they confiscated those. And so then these very, very smart students started and it had so many levels when I I was told that I just had to laugh at the ingenuity of these young women. They started using the ID card from the school. So their ID card, they started scraping until it bled and you're going to take away their ID card. They can't access any of the library materials. So they started to then have nightly checks where they would have the young women stripped to their underwear to check for any cuts or burns. And it started going under the underwear. And so that's when they got me involved. And I said, you lost the battle way, way back, you know, like you're past, way past what you should have done. Because to take someone who is dealing with intense personal pain or difficulties in the best way they know how, 
And who knows what that pain source is and to traumatize them with an intrusive bodily search is the opposite of what schools should be doing, which is supporting. So what I absolutely teach in schools is do not ask to see the scars or the the wounds or anything. It's not gonna give you any information and it's intrusive. It misses the point. It's not about the self-injury. You certainly should ask about whether any of the wounds need medical care. That is a health and safety issue. But beyond requiring medical care, it's a privacy issue. And you are here to support their emotional well-being. You are not here to determine if a cut is big, small, a burn is severe or not. So back up and keep your eye on the goal, which is to support your students' well-being, not to do medical checks. And sadly, this is not just my friend's experience. This brings me to my next question regarding liability. So schools often worry about liability, including self-injury wounds, and there can be a low tolerance for behaviors about which they know little, such as self-injury. However, there's now a lot of information and training available for schools and learning how to respond appropriately to students who self-injure. When is concern for liability no longer an appropriate excuse for improper responses to students who self-injure? I have very low tolerance for inappropriate behavior, inappropriate response to students in schools, because liability is about inappropriate response. You are liable for an inappropriate response. So when you think, oh, I'm covering, excuse the language, covering my tush, we'll call it, (laughs) covering my tush by checking the body and sending them home and, and, you know, telling them they can't come back until they stop this behavior, all of which we see sadly far, far too frequently. You are not, you are not saving yourself the liability because if the parent happens to inform themselves down the road, and if, God forbid, that child is sufficiently traumatized by what you have done, that something else happens, you're liable then. Your inappropriate response when you have access to proper training, that is liability. And I have found tremendous success in working with school leaders to clarify liability. That, you know, as I mentioned earlier, if you turn away from self-injury because you're afraid of the liability, you are liable. Because ignoring a behavior that you have every reason and should, your mental health professional should know this increases risk for suicide attempt, and you have ignored it or you have inappropriately responded, you should be liable for that. Now, at this point in time, it has not been tested, but I would not be surprised if it was tested in the fairly near future. Because there is, as you say, tremendous amounts of information available easily online to school professionals about appropriate response. And if they persist in doing re-traumatizing, harmful responses to self-injury, they are going to be liable. And that's what they're not realizing. 
Excellent response. And related to that, beyond just the intrusiveness of body checks, I've heard stories of individuals seeking support at school, and then rather than receiving the support, they're sent to the hospital or maybe sent to a therapist like myself, a psychologist to <laughs> quote, evaluate to make sure that they're okay to go back to school when it was very unnecessary and they could have done it there at the school. So for the liability that schools might have about their misunderstanding of self-injury as a suicide attempt, they may just send them straight to the hospital, to the emergency room to be evaluated, or to a therapist to be evaluated when they don't need to be. How can schools better respond to maybe superficial wounds of self-injury rather than just send them to the emergency room? Well, that's a really interesting issue because the way we get that to change is when, and this happened in my context here in Canada, is when the hospitals started sending the kids back, <laughs> where the hospitals came to me and to the school board and said, you can't do this because keep in mind, you have upwards of 20% of kids who come to the attention of the school as engaging in self-injury. If you're sending 20% of your student body to emergency, <laughs> you know, the emergency rooms get overburdened. What happened here is that literally the emergency room physicians approached my university and said, we need to work together to educate schools because we're getting these referrals where a kid is put in a taxi with someone brought to us and they have to be assessed immediately. And we don't have the resources to assess every young person who engages in some self-injury. So in a way, that changes when the people who are these kids are being sent to say, no, this is, send it back. What do they say? Necessity is the mother of invention. So when schools no longer have somewhere to send these kids, every single one, they start seeking ways of better being able to assess the need and appropriate referrals. So I think as long as there are people and places they can send the kids, they will continue to because it is the easiest thing to do. And it checks the box of we did what we have to do. It got us out of our liability concern. So I would turn it, I want the schools to be educated. I want the schools to learn better. But I also ask that the people that are receiving these referrals do some of the prompted education and say, look, this young person should not have been sent to me. Here are some resources. Educate your school personnel on when a referral is appropriate. This is so good because we get referrals from schools in an outpatient setting saying that you can't come back to school until you see someone to evaluate you. And that's assuming someone has availability right then and there. And sometimes it's not for days or, or a week to even have the ability to do an official evaluation that usually results in them going back to school. So these students are missing days and weeks of school unnecessarily. And so I, I like what you're saying as far as putting the burden back on them that they can problem solve. I'm getting some ideas as we're talking and how we, I might build some community relationships with the schools when that happens, uh, rather than say, we'll do an evaluation, we'll, we'll do a training. Exactly. It's almost like at your end, creating a protocol for a quick sort of assessment. And then if this is clearly repeatedly from certain schools, getting referrals that are not appropriate, then sending back, here are the resources, we want you to have checked these boxes before you send a student to us. And that's what we did here. Because we did not have the capacity anymore to take everyone who was being just automatically referred out. 
I love that idea, having them check the boxes to show that they've done everything and then they can send them to you. (laughs) I like that a lot, actually. (laughs) Going back to earlier in our interview, you had mentioned the global prevalence of self-injury, mentioning different countries and you working with schools in other countries. How do schools in the U.S. and Canada manage self-injury differently than other parts of the world? In terms of how schools manage self-injury in different educational contexts globally, there is tremendous variability in how they respond. There are certain commonalities. Unfortunately, even in contexts where there's tremendous resources and support, such as in the US and Canada, we still see the stigma. We still see some of the things you're describing and I'm describing. We see all of that. But what we see in other countries, like I work with China, India, Iran, Jordan, and what we see in other places is a still a complete lack of understanding of what this behavior is at all. In our context, it's in the media. We have some major people speaking out about it. But Even that sort of cultural reference to self-injury has not reached in some non-Western contexts. So it's still perceived as either something that is an extremely bizarre, sick behavior that requires inpatient hospitalization, which is shocking to us, or something that is a willful misbehavior on the part of the child. So we see that full realm. And what is most noticeable is it's, in many of these contexts, completely non-visible. So we did a study in Iran, and the schools said it's absolutely not in our schools. Like, there's no point in doing this because it's not here. We know it's not here. And we said, well, humor us. And luckily, we had good partners there. We did an anonymous survey. And it was as high or higher North American context. And interestingly, the boys were even higher than girls, which was a little switch because of the incredible emphasis on them for achievement and upholding everything in the family, the expectations. So it was there and they had no awareness of it. And this is what we see. And it's often really tied to the concept of suicide in some of these contexts. So schools, unfortunately, don't see it at all, like literally say we don't have it, or they say right away what you're describing, send to the hospital. But this is like send to the hospital until they're a changed human being. We don't want them back. So as a result, it's absolutely underground. And what these young people are doing, even in places where internet is quite controlled, they're using the internet to find the supports, which is amazing. So kudos to all those internet supports, because you are definitely drawing from places where it is still a very, very hidden behavior in the schools. It's not on their radar at all. They just feel it doesn't exist in their context. 
Thank you for sharing that because I'm not even sure I knew that specifically about Iran. I know we have listeners in those countries and maybe sharing this podcast as a resource with some of those schools, particularly this episode and others, maybe will help provide that education in a different way. Mm -hmm. Is there anything else you'd like to share that we may have missed? That's a difficult question. There are so many things I want to share. (laughs) I think the one thing I feel most strongly about in, in this field is that people think that to address, and this is people who don't work in the area, they or don't have lived experience, think that it's such a complicated, such a a difficult and hard to understand behavior. For people who don't have lived experience and who haven't had close contact with people with lived experience, they tend to see it very much as other. How could someone do that to their body? And they think it takes a lot to support someone. It takes, you know, they're going to need a lot of help. It's going to be very complicated. It's, it's, It's a difficult problem. It's not. It's really not. You know, it is so simple if we take off the lens of how could someone purposely hurt themselves like that? How could they do it? Which a certain proportion, and I do this in my intro psych class, I say, how many of you could imagine cutting or burning yourself? Could, Regardless of whether you want to or don't want to, how many of you could see doing that? Picture doing it and think, could you do it? Raise your hand. And there's always predictably about 35 to 40% of the class who goes, yeah, I I don't I think I could do that, right? And there's like 50 to 60% who are like who have a gut reaction of Ugh! you know? And when they have that gut reaction, they think that it's really something different when it's not. It's no different than that 50 or 60% when I say when you've had a really bad day and something's gone really wrong or a breakup, do you ever get blackout drunk? Oh, yeah, yeah, I do it, I do it. Well, then, you know, it's a different coping behavior. It's neither of them are a healthy one. You need to find other ways. But when you think of it that way and take away this sort of otherness, all you need to do is be supported and concerned about the individuals in the school, in your immediate surroundings, yourself. Care for yourself or for the people around you and get the support to find other coping strategies. It's that simple. It's not magic, it's not 20 years of psychotherapy. You know, it's support. Yeah, thank you, I think that's a great example, or great exercise for your class to consider and maybe for those listening to consider, especially if they don't have uh, lived experience of self-injury. Finally, based on our conversation today, what would you recommend to parents of children who have self-injured? I think the main thing to parents is, and speaking as a parent myself, is you need to educate yourself. Do not chat with other people. Do not listen to stories. And unfortunately, don't even necessarily listen to the mental health professionals in your local school (laughs) because they may not have the training that they should have. The best place is to go online and look for reputable resources and learn about the behavior before you have that first response with your child. 
and don't panic. There's no need to panic. Once you educate yourself and then again, take that supportive approach and the healthy, unhealthy coping framework, that can drive how you're going to respond to this as opposed to taking a controlling approach because controlling as a parent and I know as a parent myself, when you are worried about your child, you go into control mode. You want to keep them safe. And I get that. But really, before you go that route, educate yourself about the behavior. In terms of professionals, whether clinicians or researchers, it's you know not that dissimilar in terms of my feedback. Because I think clinicians and researchers are different from parents because parents think they have to go by their gut. And I say, don't go by your gut, educate yourself. Mm -hmm. Researchers and clinicians think, I know how to respond. I understand, you know, I, I know clinically, you know, what to do. Or a researcher, I've studied this. No, you don't know as much as you think you know. So I would say step back and have a more open mind to how you approach this. And specifically, clinicians and researchers would benefit tremendously from listening, reading, and interacting with those with lived experience, because those with lived experience have an insight that you cannot have as a clinician or researcher without talking, working side by side with individuals with lived experience. And for people with lived experience, Wherever you are on your path, wherever you may be, keep in mind that what you bring to the table is that insight, is that potential for contribution and shining a light on this. No one else has that light. No one else has the ability to help all of these other important stakeholders to understand what's going on and what is okay in response and what is not okay. And it's not your role to educate everyone, but when you feel you can or you're able to, know that you have a unique power and a unique knowledge that others must gain at some point. Thank you. I fully agree with those recommendations. And as a clinician and researcher, I, I'm always learning as I'm learning about the behavior from the research, but also from those that I treat in therapy and even more the people that I've interviewed with lived experience for this podcast. And we have more lined up that are going to be sharing their stories. And I'm constantly learning. We recently did an episode on navigating self-injury during routine doctor visits and just thinking mm -hmm. about something I never actually never thought about what that might be like for an individual navigating those visits with scars that maybe have self-injured years ago uh, or are currently self-injuring. And so having Brittany Tinsley share her tips, like what she walks herself through in preparation for those visits has been a really popular episode already. Well, thank you, Dr. Heath, for all your insights. This has been very helpful, if anyone, for me. So <laughs> thank you for joining us and sharing your expertise today. Well, thank you so much for having me. And I hope that reaches educators as well and makes a difference. And so that people with lived experience get a better response in the educational system than what they have been in the past. Thank you so much. 
We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Psychology of Self-Injury podcast. It is not considered therapy or meant to be a replacement for therapy, so if you or someone you love is in crisis and needs to talk to someone, you can reach out to the Crisis Text Line, a global not-for-profit organization providing free mental health texting service through confidential crisis intervention by texting HOME to 741-741. If you found this podcast helpful, please subscribe, give us a rating, and tell your friends. For all things psychology, follow me on Instagram and Twitter at DocWesters. For all things self-injury, follow IS on Facebook and Twitter at I-T-R-I-P-L-E-S. I'm Dr. Nicholas Westers. Thank you for listening to The Psychology of Self-Injury.